by no means am I trying to judge your situation. If right. you really have to do it, by all means do it and do it decisively. Right. All that, you know, hopefully these podcasts are providing information and even more so just stimulating some thought about how you practice medicine. You know, I, my assumptions about practicing medicine and my own practice of medicine are challenged at least on a weekly basis by the evidence. I read an article. I was like, huh, do I do that? I guess I do. Maybe I shouldn't, right. you know? Um, and that's all this is meant to be. This isn't a like, Oh, you know, no medic, no role one provider, no PA, you know, you know, you're doing it all wrong. That's right. not it. You know, it, it's like, you know, evidence really exists to challenge and make us think mm -hmm. and thoughtful providers are better providers because right. they will evolve their care and do better for their patients than the ones who are like, well, that's the way I was trained 20 years, 20 years ago. And that's the way I'm going to treat my patients for the rest of my freaking career. I hate those people. I never want to be one. And the minute I am, you know, kick me off the podcast and send me out to fly fish. Right. <laughs> Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. This is Dennis, and today I am with Doug Powell, and we're going to talk about applying uh, evidence-based medicine uh, research into the pre-hospital environment. Um, Thanks for coming back, Doug. Dennis, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, the, uh, the impetus of this is I, I listened to a podcast that's called uh, uh, Element Rescue. I thought it was a really good podcast, and they were talking about evidence-based medicine and that it might not be, you know, the, the holy grail that people put it up as, and they were more talking about in the pre-hospital world, the environment, the context of the situation has a lot to play with, uh, you know, how you're going to tackle a specific situation. I definitely agree with that, but I'm kind of sitting on the fence as far as, um, you know, is, is evidence-based medicine or this environmental-based medicine you know, I'm trying to figure out which side I'm on. So I brought Doug on board, uh, and everybody knows uh, Doug and how brilliant he is. So if there was anybody that I could ask about research, it'd be him. So, Doug, uh, my first question is, what exactly is evidence-based medicine? Dennis, uh, great question. I'll try to do a, a, a pretty quick overview and then uh, without getting too, too much in the weeds and, and hopefully give everybody who's listening to this at least a bit of information that they can use if they are reading medical articles to evaluate the quality of evidence, which is what we as providers do at pretty much any article we read. So evidence-based medicine or EBM is um, our clinical practices that are supported by findings in clinical trials. And generally what happens is researchers uh, um, ask a certain question. Um, and I'm going to use mechanical ventilation just because we're going to get to that later in this podcast or then may potentially segue into a second podcast. 
And I think it's also going to become a hotter topic because of some research that was presented at SAMHSA recently. So let's just start getting used to that now. So um, I can't remember if it was 1999 or 2001, researchers at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute asked whether um, patients with ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, would do better if they had normal tidal volume ventilation or low tidal volume ventilation with the high. So that's the question. Questions are always based on a hypothesis. The hypothesis in this case was that normal tidal volume ventilation, which was sometimes north of 10 liters per kilogram of, I'm sorry, one liter or 10, 1000 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight, whether that increased the risk of trauma to the lungs, ventilator induced trauma, and that was um, making patient outcomes worse. So they did this, um, they did this trial to ask this question. And the answer was that the patients with low tidal volume ventilation, so six to eight cc's, um, per kilogram of ideal body weight or less, um, had a survival advantage. They did better. They were ventilated, you know, for a shorter amount of time. They got out of the ICU faster and they had a survival advantage. And that's, you know, that is the, that is the lodestar of mechanical ventilation trials in history. We still refer to it this day and most ventilator strategies are still based on that trial. It's held up. It stood the test of time well. That, um, that is sort of how you go about framing a research question and a research hypothesis. And then you conduct your trial based on a bunch of things, your available resources, your available funding, um, and, uh, and a couple of other considerations with the highest quality trial being a double blind. So, so double blind means that the people receiving the clinical intervention and the people providing it both are blind to the intervention, um, who's getting what essentially. So let's say it's a drug, you know, let's say I'm the researcher and Dennis, you're, um, the, the patient mm -hmm. and you have been randomly selected to get the test drug, not the placebo. Right. So I give you a pill and you take it. I don't know if the pill that I'm giving you is placebo or the treatment that we're studying. You don't know if the pill is treatment or that we're studying or placebo. And I don't know if you've been selected to be in the treatment arm of a placebo or that's the double blind. You're blind and I'm blind. That's right. the double and double blind. Yeah. That's like the gold standard. It's very, very hard to hit. Um, you know, some treatments, you know, there's no placebo, right? If you're going to operate on somebody's, you know, do a surgical procedure on somebody, there are quote unquote sham surgical procedures, but it's pretty hard to give somebody placebo that looks like the, the main surgical procedure. So that's one thing. Um, sometimes you just can't enroll enough people to get the numbers you need for a trial like that. Sometimes you don't have the funding. So you go down, um, the list and, um, sometimes, you know, there are case controls where, you know, you look, um, back retrospectively as opposed to prospectively, uh, uh, at something because you, you just, you know, can't enroll somebody, you can't enroll people prospectively. Um, so you go into the record, right? You do a chart review, you do interviews, et cetera. Um, that's a retrospective trial. I should say that 
double blind prospective randomized control trials are the highest standard looking forward. So nobody has an idea that they're getting something before it starts. Um, so, and, and that's kind of it. And so there are various qualities of trials. Most clinical trials are not double blind placebo controlled prospective randomized controlled trials. Um, just, they're just too hard to set up and many questions can be answered with that. So another indication of the quality of the trial is what's the quality of the journal that it's published in, right? Something that shows up in Journal of American Medical Association or JAMA, probably a reasonably reasonable quality uh, trial. And you go from there. But that was a long answer and probably too convoluted for this podcast. You can edit most of that out. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, but listening to this uh, podcast with Element Rescue, I think one of the aspects that they were critical of is that in a given trial, it's usually one variable that in, in, an individual trial is looking at. But their their point of view was, well, there's only one thing that's being adjusted. In the pre-hospital world, we have multiple things being adjusted at different times. Because of that, evidence-based medicine, on its own anyway, couldn't necessarily match with with the given context of a of situation, I guess could you do a trial where you have multiple variables? It's it's very difficult. Um, it, normally, you're right that that's both a strength and a limitation of clinical trials. Is you are asking one question, you are testing one intervention. Um, now you can do with statistics something called controlling for variables. Um, and you always have to pre-select what your variables are. And this is where, you know, doing trials with a good statistician really makes a difference because, um, a good statistician will, t will help you develop what variables you want to control for. Um, and, and, and ensure that you get those out ahead of time so that you can build them into your study rather than like completing your whole study and thinking, Oh, dang, I wish we had controlled for that. You know, what happens when, you know, we treat this patient, uh, and the temperature is, you know, below zero degrees Celsius, you know, when they're freezing, you know, for instance, um, if you thought about that beforehand, if you thought about temperature beforehand, you're good to go. If you think about it afterwards, you can't really go back in and insert that easily or, that accurately. Um, and what happens, we have the same problem in clinical medicine, uh, you know, that there are in complicated patients, there are a lot of different variables, you know, there, we don't have the environmental vari variables, obviously, but we still have a lot of clinical variables, you know, this we're doing you know, we're adjusting the patient's ventilator because there's some respiratory failure. Well, now he's in renal failure. Now he's in liver failure. You know, how does that affect it? And you do a couple different things. Number one is um, for the big questions, you pull in the evidence, you know, sort of like problem by problem right? I've got this problem of ventilation. Well, I'm going to, you know, pull in this study. I've got this problem of sedation. Well, I'm going to pull in that study. I've got this problem of analgesia. Well, I'm going to pull in that study. I've got this problem of, of uh, wound care. I'm going to pull in that study. So, you know, in any given patient in a day, you might be referencing, you know, over a dozen pieces of literature, but no, literature can never... Um, answer the complete matrix of complexity that a patient provides, whether they're in a, in a hospital or not in a hospital. Right. 
if we do think that environmental considerations could influence treatment and influence the management of our patients, that's a study that should be generated. Right. And I mean, just because, uh, you know, one research question has been answered, and usually if you read the back of them, they have a suggestion of more research in this area is needed. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a crash trial, you have crash two, you have crash three. Each time we're teasing out more and more information. So sometimes it's also some patients um, waiting for these trials to come out. Right. So evidence-based medicine definitely has its place. Is there any room for things that are not evidence-based medicine? Because there's a lot of stuff that we do that does not have direct research on it. Sure. Um, absolutely. You can't, you can't study everything. Number one is there's not enough time. There's not enough money. And some questions are very, very difficult to, to, to study, um, to, to do a, a controlled clinical trial on, um, or even to find the answer in a chart review and do a retrospective. So, um, absolutely in clinical medicine, there are best practices. That is actually a level of evidence. Um, you know, it's kind of lower down the scale, but, you know, expert consensus, clinical best practice is actually a level of evidence. You know, this is the way I train, so I'm going to do it this way, or this is what I believe. And that's, that's not evidence, right? But, um, expert consensus is considered a, a lower level of evidence. So, um, you know, take, for example, when we develop the, um, prolonged field care clinical practice guidelines mm -hmm. with the joint trauma system, right? That was, um, there's been a great collaboration. And our thought was that um, there was an opportunity to apply clinical medicine, evidence-based medicine to austere, remote, pre-hospital care. And let's partner with people who, you know, kind of live in that world and think in that way every day to see, you know, what we could do. And, you know, now we're on, I don't know, a half dozen or, or more CPGs with more in the pipeline. Um, and it's a great partnership. And we've learned from the folks at JTS and they've learned from us. And I think that it's only going to get better. So when we d develop a clinical practice guideline for each, you know, sort of section that we're giving recommendations for, we're going to try to give answers that are best based on evidence. When we can't give answers based on evidence because no evidence exists, we'll then get together on these torturously long email chains and arrive at what we think is the, is expert consensus. And that's, that's where, and that's how, you know, the non evidence based portions of the clinical practice guidelines are written. Um, and we'll also make a note that these recommendations for which evidence doesn't exist or we can't find any or the, or this hospital evidence doesn't apply to the pre-hospital world. We'll also note those as opportunities for future research and we'll use those to guide the many researchers who contact, contact us and say, Hey, you know, we want to help you with your problem. What can we study? We'll say, well, we couldn't answer this question, you know, um, we could answer this question from the evidence or because of this piece of equipment. So why don't you go study that? And that way, at least we're giving them things to study based right. on what our reality is, not what they perceive our reality to be. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, just between the operational environment and the research environment, 
the more context you give to the researcher, the more accurate the question that they can then look at. Absolutely. You know, and this is where um, probably one of the biggest places we make our money with this is at the MHSRS, the Military Health Sciences Research Symposium every year. And it's been in Orlando for a while now. I don't know if it'll continue to be there every August where you do have clinical researchers that come together um, for both inside and outside the military. Um, with military people and they collaborate and, you know, we, we work with them a lot. Um, prolonged field care is a, is a pretty hot topic in the military now. So there's, you know, research money that's being freed up to study it and made available to study it. Anytime you have research money available, you have researchers interested in, you know, writing a grant and, and helping you with a problem. And that's where we do a, a, a a good portion of our crosstalk to make sure that, you know, they understand what our situation is and they're studying things that are worthwhile for us and, and, the, and the research money is well spent. So, um, you know, any given uh, piece of research that is, let's say is hospital based, mm -hmm. how do I take that hospital based research that, that evidence and how do I overlay it into the pre-hospital environment? Okay. Um, I'm going to give you an example based on a case. Okay. Um, and before I start the case, uh, I'm going to basically give you the framework that I approach evidence in prolonged field care and evidence in pre-hospital medicine from, which may help answer, you know, the conundrum you found yourself in listening to this other podcast, you know, am I on the environmental side or I'm on the evidence side? And my answer is going to be, you should straddle the fence. You should, you, you know, balance on the fence and, you know, you're going to fall different ways based on different situations, but stay on the fence. Um, and, and my approach to this is, is not Doug Powell's approach. It was informed by, really good friend and a mentor who was uh, a command sergeant major, 18 Delta, um, retired out of a tier one unit, um, who, to who told me this, and I've believed it ever since. He said, Doug, the best field medicine is good clinical medicine from based on hospital standards applied as closely as possible to those hospital standards. And you improvise because you have to, not because you can and everybody I've mentioned that quote to, you know, who practices pre-hospital medicine, medics, docs, et cetera, you know, they sort of see, oh, yeah, we get it. And I hold to that because using the environment, whether that environment is just austerity or weather or gunfight or whatever – as, as your starting point to make an excuse for not practicing good medicine has already got you down a slippery slope. You may have to go down there, but it's be the best way to avoid falling down a slippery slope is not to take the first step. So if you can stand on the top of that cliff or stand on the top of that slope and say, you know, hey, here's where the evidence is going to dictate that I take my patient with my interventions. Um, and then you know, you run out of stuff. You, you've got a problem that isn't based on the evidence. You, you know, you don't have access to the evidence and then you have to improvise. Okay, great. But if you start out, you know, saying, you know, it, I'm going to, I'm going to do this because I can, I'm going to amputate this leg with my K bar because I can. Um, that, that's just, that's, 
that doesn't do any favors for your patient. It really doesn't do any favors for you as a clinician um, because you've already fallen down the slope a little bit and you're standing at, at the top of best practice. Um, so here's the case. I'm a consultant on the advisor telemedicine program, and I got a call um, a few months ago uh, from actually from a, a, a role three. Uh, and it was a physician who was actually calling me. Um, and he had a patient who had a gunshot wound to the head who had become really, really hypoxic. He had a really, he had a ventilation question. And so I'm an intensive care doc. Ventilation is what we do. Um, he got through to me on the line and we kind of talked through the problem. And they said, you know, no matter what we do to ventilate this guy, we cannot get his oxygen levels back up. So he really had an oxygenation problem. He was on a ventilator, but he was having trouble oxygenating. And they had maxed out his PEEP. Um, they had tried uh, a bunch of other stuff that we can get into when we talk about ventilator management more. Basically, they had tried everything they had the capability for at this hospital, and he was failing, and they were having to take him off the ventilator, manually bag him up with long breath holds to expand his lungs again, which we call a recruitment maneuver, to get his sats up into the like low 80s before they put him out back on the ventilator, you know, recovered from their carpal t- tunnel syndrome until they could bag him the next time. And they've been doing this for like 12 hours. So in uh, the 2000 teens, I think, I can't remember the year. I'm not good with years. I'm better with evidence with years, but somewhere in like 2013, 14, there had been an article in the New England Journal on the technique of prone ventilation. And prone ventilation is when we put the patient's lungs down, chest down to the table. And I can explain the physiology of that in a little bit. Down to the table. And the idea is you get more expansion of the lungs. You can recruit more alveoli into exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide with the chest down than with the chest, um, with the chest up. And there have been a bunch of these trials. I had read many of them in my training, and they had all been negative. Uh, they had all shown no difference between prone ventilation and normal, you know, supine ventilation. This one was different. It was a positive study. Uh, there was uh, improvement in oxygenation. There was a decrease in vent days, v- decrease in ICU days, and a st- decrease in uh, an increase in survival with the intervention arm, the prone arm. And what had happened was, and and this is always good, when you see a positive study and you've seen a bunch of negative studies, you're like, well, what's, what's the difference? Um, and often the authors will tell you that in the discussion, which is, you know, if you read nothing else in a, um, in a study, read the abstract uh, and the discussion um, uh, in the introduction, if you can as well, because that frames the problem. They said, well, we just tried it for longer. All the other studies had been, you know, four hours, six hours, two hours, 12 hours. We tried for 16 hours uh, and it worked. And that physiologically made sense to me because I know that when alveoli are stuck together because of atelectasis or ARDRs, it takes them a long time to pry them open with positive pressure. So I was like, okay, cool. So I talked to this doc and I said, have you tried prone ventilation? He said, no. We thought about it, but we weren't sure if it would work. We were never really that familiar. Do you know anything about it? And it's like, yeah. And so I talked about the study. They prone the patient. Long story short, they prone the patient. 
oxygenation improved within hours. Within four hours, they got him off of 100% FiO2 down to 80%. His blood gas was coming up by the following morning. His FiO2 was down to 60%. His blood gas looked pristine. His oxygen set had been in the 90s. And so that was an application of knowing the study, knowing the results, applying it to, now this isn't pre-hospital, but it could be because you can prone a patient on a cot. You can prone a patient on a litter. You can prone a patient on the ground. And based on that, you know, understanding of the mechanism, I've actually started teaching that as a prolonged field care pre-hospital technique because it'll work and improve oxygenation even if you don't have oxygen because you're getting more alveoli into the oxygenation uh, uh, exchange game. How's that for an example? Oh, that's an excellent example because, I mean, it's not, you know, in this case, you know, a physician talking to another physician from one hospital to another hospital. That's not, that's not the, that's not the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, because even if this person had been in a pre-hospital environment, it's just the number of tools in their bag would have been smaller. Right. But the, the same technique shown to be effective in the evidence would have applied in the pre-hospital environment, which is why we're teaching it and which will go into, you know, an upcoming ventilation clinical practice guideline, because you're right in pre-hospital, he wouldn't have the ventilator that they had. They wouldn't have been able to do a bunch of the stuff that they had. You would have been able to do, you know, manual ventilation and breath holds with a peep valve and you could have done proning. So this is a perfect example of where the evidence that this, you know, doctor in a hospital hadn't been super exposed to, wasn't a hundred percent comfortable with, right. you know, would have made instant sense in a pre-hospital environment for a medic. Right. Cause I mean, we, when you, at least when I look at uh, some kind of research, you know, I'm looking at, you know, what patient types are they, are they coming in with? What is the context of this research? Mm. Um, and is there any room for me in this, in a pre-hospital version of this, right. you know, is the patient with an injury severity score of between this and this, the patients are between the ages of this and this, um, you know, is this, does that really somewhat fit my patient? Mm -hmm. Um, but in, but as far as the technique, you know, does the research apply? It depends, you know, I think, you know, in this case, proning, it wouldn't have mattered. You know, if he was in an ICU or he was in a ditch, the evidence said, yeah, this will work. It's right. how many tools did you have to use to get to that point? Pre-hospital, you'd had a lot fewer tools, um, a lot fewer techniques. But, yeah, it would have worked just because it's positioning. You know, if you don't have the equipment for it, well, then I guess you don't have it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that maybe that particular research, if they're talking about type of a ventilator or a mode of ventilation, I guess it doesn't apply to you. Right. And now you fall back on, you know, consensus as far as your research data saying, you know, I'm going to do this or not going to do this. Right. Um, so I think it's just more comfort in, in not saying, you know, I only practice evidence-based medicine. Well, I don't think that's true. Um, you're informed. P portions of your treatment plans are informed by evidence-based medicine, mm -hmm. but being able to straddle that fence between, well, if the research doesn't apply to it because I don't have the equipment or, you know, the multiple different injury types that 
this one patient has that contradicts something, right, well, then I go now my next level of consensus base or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that? No, absolutely. And I'll, I'll give you another example, uh, if, if I might, from the sedation and analgesia clinical practice guideline, because this is, you know, um, this is going to be a lot more gray, right? Proning is like, it's easy. You flip the guy in his chest. If he's got a, you know, C-spine injury, you know, you just maintain traction and, and figure out how to brace and crib his head looking straight down with a C-collar. Um, that's, you know, that's MacGyvering. I think we all do that well. Um, but it's not really, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a binary answer. You know, I can do it or I can't. And if I do it, the evidence says he, he's got a chance of doing quite a bit better. Sedation and analgesia, much more gray area, right? And everybody's like, well, you know, I've got, uh, I've got this case and, you know, I need to give him this drug because, um, this is what I'm used to, or I need to give him, you know, deep sedation or I need to paralyze him. Um, because, you know, of tactical situation. And I'm like, that's all well and good. Um, and you may need to get there, but we based the guideline on extremely good evidence validated every time we look at the study that said that from the first 30 minutes of sedation and analgesia using the lowest level sedation, the lowest level of analgesia, having the patient be, you know, somewhat interactive um, on an objective scale, so we use the Richmond Agitation and Sedation Scale or the RAS scale, um, you know, a RAS of minus one or a RAS of minus two at the deepest, they do better. And what do they do better in terms of? They do better in terms of less time in the ventilator, less time uh, in the ICU, less, in, most importantly for our folks, less lower incidence of PTSD and a lower incidence of post-critical illness disability where, um, where, which one of the biggest contributors is, you know, the atrophy of respiratory muscles from being so deeply sedated that they're just not breathing on their own. Right. And so I just read a study recently where, you know, they talk about now the golden 30 minutes of initial sedation, uh, or the golden hour. I can't remember if it's 30 minutes or an hour of sedation and analgesia and where patients that got high doses of initial sedation and analgesia, even in that first 30 or 60 minutes, still had worse outcomes on the disability and the PTSD scale than those who were at their goal as early as possible. Uh-huh. So understand that that's where we're coming from, from these recommendations. It's not, it's not, uh, hey, these are a bunch of doctors in the hospital just, you know, telling you how to practice tactical medicine and they don't have a clue. It's that if you can, if the tactical situation allows you to practice this kind of medicine, your patients will probably have a better long-term outcome from some really concerning things, right? PTSD is a horrible affliction. ICU-related or critical illness-related disability is a horrible, you know, affliction. You know, 50% of, of patients in ICUs in a New England, you know, post-ICU in a New England Journal study never recovered enough function to hold a job again. I mean, our population is younger, they're healthier, but it still hits the young, healthy trauma population. And, you know, when I trained at, at shock trauma, among other trauma places, I just was talking with the University of West Virginia and the cardiac ICU. They're like, we get people up and walking on ventilators because we think it's so important, you know, to, to avoid this disability. Um, so that's where we're coming from. And that's an example where people were like, well, you know, the technical situation says I got to snow this person. Well, maybe it does, but ask, at least ask yourself twice. Does it really? 
Right. Or are you just giving them a ton of Versed and giving them a ton of fentanyl or giving them a ton of ketamine because that's what you think the tactical situation needs right. without really a good analysis of right. it? Are you treating yourself more than the patient? Correct. Correct. And that's, you know, that's the other thing we don't talk about in these, you know, we don't talk about ICU disability and the side effects of these medicines in the clinical practice guidelines because, you know, we don't want to make them a hundred pages. We want to make right. them 10. Um, but that's the, so what of those recommendations? Yeah. Is that, so that's a little bit more gray area right. interpretation of the literature in your tactical situation or in your pre-hospital situation. Um, but I would submit that many other patients in that situation can follow the best clinical guidelines and, and, and some that, that don't, you know, could, if you just taken another beat, if we had just taken another beat, checked our own pulse and said, well, yeah, well, let's give this a try first. Right. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, having been in the field, I definitely understand the, um, the urgency of treating patients and the temptation of, I'm just going to put this guy out because I'm really, I'm very uh, frustrated with him screaming in my face while I'm trying to save his life. Yeah. Um, but did he actually need it? Uh, you know, being able to step back years later, like, eh, you know, I probably didn't. I was probably treating myself more than him. Could I have, you know, moved to another location with him where it was a little more controlled and then done it properly? Yeah, I probably could have. But at the time, I didn't. Um, so I think, and I think that's something that just comes with experience. It comes with, and it comes with experience and it comes with, you know, us getting more familiar with taking care of these critical casualties for a long period of time, which we haven't had to do for a long time. And, and an understanding that, you know, when you drop your patient off at the roll three within 30 minutes, or you as an, as an ambulance drop your patient off at shock trauma within 30 minutes, within that golden 30 minutes or within that golden hour, you're going to get people taking care of that patient that are experts, not just in stabilizing them, but in understanding the consequences of what they're doing in the first hours can dramatically affect their long-term quality of life, recovery, and well-being. And when that now falls on our medics and our role one providers in prolonged field care, that's, that's something that we need to do a good job of explaining because what you do in that role one, what you do in that team house, what you do on that non-traditional evac platform in those first hours can dramatically affect, um, the recovery, the quality of life and the well-being of your casualty. Just, uh, it was probably your teammate or your buddy. Um, um, hopefully your teammates are your buddies. Uh, and that's, you know, that's kind of PFC 301401, right. uh, is, is understanding, you know, this responsibility you have not just for your patient's short-term care or even intermediate term care, but long-term well-being by how you practice medicine, um, from the get-go. Right. Well, hey, thank you, Doug. That's, uh, you know, I really appreciate it when, uh, you can come on and, uh, enlighten, uh, knuckleheads like me <laughs> thanks for having me dennis and uh, thanks for keeping me on my toes and uh appreciate appreciate the invitation too easy that's it for today's podcast be sure to go to our website www.prolongfieldcare.org find us on facebook youtube instagram subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine this is dennis for the pfc podcast 
Out. Great boy is waiting there for you.